Psalm 119 is probably best known for being the longest psalm in the Psalter and for concentrating, you could say exclusively, on God's law, precepts, commandments, ordinances, and so on. This morning, I want to explore with you the function of God's word in this well-known psalm. What does it do in the life and heart of the psalmist, or what does he want it to do? How does God's word do what it does? And how is the psalmist involved in receiving, believing, and responding to that word? As we probe these issues, we will see from Psalm 119 that the life of faith is, as it presents it, a response to and a living in and by God's saving word. With that in mind, we'll focus uh, on the psalm's explicit references to life or live or revive, or in the King James, quicken, which occur in uh, 16 different verses, all based on the same Hebrew root. I'll mention these references as we go rather than listing them for you now, but we've already seen three of them in the passage we read in verse 154, 156, and again in 159. As the last chapel on the theme of community, this psalm might seem a strange choice. For example, there are no first-person plural pronouns whatsoever. There's no me, there's no us, there's no our. And on the contrary, there are lots of me, I, and mine. probably one per verse. But it would be a mistake to think that these grammatical facts uh, allow us to conclude that the psalm's focus on the Christian life is one of isolation, one of individualism. From the very first verse, if you look at verse 1 just for a moment, uh, the author is already oriented towards those who are undefiled in the way, who walk in the law of the Lord. And as we unpack the psalm, we'll see that the life of faith inevitably involves a communal or corporate dimension. As we turn to Psalm 119, we also need to take account of a paradox that exists in relation to its references to life. Namely, the psalmist is not dead and he's not dying. This is not to say that he's not occasionally in affliction, in verse 50. Sometimes he's need, in need of divine comfort, verse 77. Sometimes he's even threatened, as in verse 87. It does mean, however, the way that the psalm uses words for life, that the psalmist's requests in this psalm are not like ones we find in other psalms, when he's persecuted by his enemies in danger of being killed and about to die. In other words, when his physical life is in danger. In Psalm 119, at least, Life is much more than biological life. This brings us to another tension or paradox that is absolutely fundamental to the psalm. That is, the psalmist is already spiritually alive and yet asks to be revived and quickened and made more spiritually alive. This is very important. The author does not see the life of faith as something static. Once you're in, you're in. It's cruise control from there on. On the contrary, he lives, if you will, toward God. There's a movement, there's a pressing in a certain direction that requires, drives him to seek deeper knowledge of, deeper relationship with God. Two points arise from this fact. One, those who are alive to God know that they are not yet fully alive to God. So their lives are characterized by a tension, by a pressure that drives them towards renewal, to seeking renewal. This begins at regeneration, of course, and continues and grows as the, progress of, as the process of sanctification moves forward. Second, those whose knowledge of God produces no movement in this direction, who are satisfied with things as they are, with the status quo, are in a very dangerous place. If you don't recognize some degree of this tension, of this movement, of this desire 
towards God, you need to examine yourself. If you're not, in Paul's words, resolutely putting off, so it's not done, but it's not not yet begun either. If you're not resolutely putting off the old man and putting on the new, you may not be spiritually alive at all. But even that extreme situation does not fall outside the scope of Psalm 119. Whatever your spiritual condition this morning, the gospel that is at the heart of this psalm offers life and hope. So in our time this morning, I want to reflect with you on the theme of life in Psalm 119 from three vantage points. First, God is the source and giver of spiritual life. Second, the psalmist's desire and pursuit of this deeper spiritual life. And thirdly, how and to what end God gives and grows our spiritual life. So, the first point, God is the source and giver of spiritual life. We must, in any case, begin with God, because that is where life, in all senses of the word, begins. The God to whom the psalmist prays, although this doesn't come up frequently in the psalm itself, is the creator of all things, who in and through the Spirit is the giver of life. The gift of life from this self-sufficient, transcendent God is automatically, necessarily a gracious gift. This is an encouragement, and the psalmist is aware of this fact. If we were to trace the whole psalm, verse by verse, which we will not do, almost every time he mentions the word life, at least, it's connected to a request. I mean, the fact that it has been given allows him to make these requests. Some examples, verse 17, deal bountifully with your servant, that's the imperative, or if you will put it otherwise, the request, so that I, am, I may live and keep your word. Verse 25, revive me according to your word. The God who has made him and every believer spiritually alive at the beginning is equally committed, equally pleased to make that life grow. Whatever our spiritual condition, therefore, whatever our circumstances, God's gracious giving character and promises spelled out in his own words are our hope. But secondly, what does the psalmist ask for? Now, at one level, you already know the answer. He asks for life. But if any word deserves a rich definition, it is the word life. The psalm presents life in ways that you could say are um, genuine, authentic. They're rooted in the messiness of life and life in a fallen world, the realities of sin. But it also talks about life in a more ultimate sense, meaning it lives life, it presents life as lived with an eye to God's promises and purposes and ends, his goals. But let's back up and begin at the beginning, so to speak. The author describes many times his present condition in rather stark terms. Verse 25, my being, this is the nephesh, so sometimes translated soul, my being clings to the dust. This is not pessimism or self-hatred. It's an honest and accurate description of the distance and the difference between where he is now and where he wants to be. The psalmist feels, in other verses, if you look at verse 37, for example, the malignant, deadening, numbing effect of things that are vain but have no lasting value and longs for the renewal of his desires to, betrain, to turn from those things to things that are life-giving, in other words, to reorder his desires. The psalmist certainly does not have an artificial, sanitized, mountaintop theology of the Christian life. You could say, if you take that metaphor, he's somewhere in the valley, um, lower than the mountain that he seeks to, to ascend, eventually, with God's help. But it's precisely in that place that he finds the word so vivifying and so comforting. 
Comfort, if we look at verse 50, for example, exists in and with the affliction. Comfort is not just the automatic full, complete deliverance from this, and suddenly we're in at the, the top of the mountain, but it goes with us as we ascend. Even when affliction is extreme, if you look at verse 107, faith remains fixed on the vivifying, renewing word of God and requests fresh grace to persevere. And the psalmist is not locked into a, I can only suffer and move upwards paradigm. He also asks for full deliverance from. So these things coexist. Look at verse 154, which we read. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. So there's, there's a desire to be moved forward and eventually out of the troubles in which he finds himself. It's this expectation in which the psalm ends. If you look at verse 175, and the same expectation you will recognize is at the heart of Christian hope. Think of Paul's words to Timothy. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. This brings us to the role of the word in the author's spiritual experience. We already know that Psalm 119 consecrates its entire attention to words, precepts, ordinances, commandments, and so on. But we're trying to understand why that is so. To state the obvious, the psalmist is not contemplating abstract truth. We're not against contemplating truth, but it's not abstract, so we don't want to go there. If you want to think of it in these terms, he's not trying to navigate life without keeping his eyes on the map, which is the word of the Lord. Not only does he commit to never forgetting the map, uh, verse 93, since by them, the precepts, you've revived me, he delights in Yahweh's teaching, verse 77, and longs for his precepts by which he is revived, verse 40. We'll come back to this in a moment, but it's important to see, sometimes this charge is laid against Protestants, that this is not bibliolatry. We're not attached to the Bible as the source of our spiritual life. It is simply this desire, the, the psalmist's desire to live in and by God's word. It's the desire to know and to hear the one whose word it is. There is a speaker behind this word. It's a message from the speaker to the recipient, to hear Thus, with our whole being, the living and active word of God involves a relationship with the speaker, whose word enlivens us, as the psalmist is requesting, and brings us to know him. Before moving on, two outcomes of this vivification should catch our attention. The psalmist asks God to revive him, on the one hand, this is not the only example, so that I might keep the testimony of your mouth, so obedience, verse 88, and in verses like 175, so that I might praise you. So obedience and praise. This is more than just an, a happenstance pair in the psalm. They're two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, the psalmist pursues, or the, on the one hand, uh, one side of the coin better, the psalmist pursues concrete ethical behaviors. I need to live these ways. And these things and the desire for that are at the same time theocentric. So there's no separation of the praise and the obedience possible. In other words, to live by God's word is to embrace his authoritative goodwill for his people, to receive it as an expression of his covenant love to us, and to respond to it in covenant love. Doing so expresses in a way that only human beings can their obedience to the one who created them in his own image. Obedience is built on the firm conviction that God is good, that we're created for his glory, and that we find our happiness and promote his glory when we are living in accord with his will. So, to summarize that point, the psalmist wants to glorify God through and by his actions, guided and enabled by the word to which he gives so much attention. And if we follow this psalm, especially the last or next to last verse of this psalm through the Psalter, the last 
five psalms of the Psalter make praise the overwhelming note. So we catch that note at various points, of course, including in Psalm 119, but that's where the, the Psalter is taking us as a whole. Thirdly, then, this Godward movement in the psalm brings us to our question, how and to what end does God give and renew spiritual life? Not surprising that the psalm does not give a full soteriology or talk about every possible way in which God begins, continues, and perfects this life in his people. But that's simply to say that the psalmist chooses to talk about those parts of spiritual experience that are closest to the things he's talking about. If one thing is clear from Psalm 119, however, God works through his word. This is already clear, but let me add one nuance to this. In the verses we're considering, God doesn't just do things by his word, like it's as if it's just a tool, an instrument, and nothing more. If you pay attention to the way the text reads, the author consistently asks God to act according to or in keeping with his word. That means, to summarize it in these terms, to keep his promises, to do what he said he would do. So his word is more than simply a statement, it's a relational act. Or to put it in these terms, the life of faith, life is our theme, is also a life of faith in the promises of God to his people. This life, of course, of faith presumes God's reliability and faithfulness. That goes without saying. But the psalm says a good deal more about the God who comes to us in the gospel. Even if we limit ourselves to the 16 verses in which life, live, revive, or quicken occur, we see a quite clear, if selective, outline of God's character. I'm going to name some of these verses in which the lexeme live occurs. He's a God who gives, verse 17. His compassion is both the ground for the request of the psalmist to revive him in verse 156, which we read, and it's part and parcel of that renewal in verse 77. God's faithfulness, covenant love, chesed, is the ground for his willingness to, to revive the author in verses 88 and 159. In short, God is the Savior. This theme appears in almost every verse of the psalm. I'll mention two in which life also occurs. Revive me through your righteousness. And in one that we read already, plead my cause and redeem me. There's the request for salvation in all its dimensions. Here, a direct connection to the New Testament is unavoidable. For all these elements come to their full expression in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Think of 2 Timothy 10. It's in him that life and immortality were brought to light through the gospel. It is also a life, as we'll see, that each believer has in common with other believers. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, which is by definition a living body because it is Christ's. Let's draw these points together by considering concretely and practically what it might look like to live in pursuit of this life with God that Psalm 119 invites us to. The first thing we have to recognize is that every aspect of the Christian life, including the progressive sanctification and renewal that we're talking about, takes place in the context of union with Christ. Let me just mention from Ephesians 2.10, two aspects of this, which are relevant. The beginning, first of all, believers are created in Christ Jesus for good works, the first part of the verse. From the very beginning, therefore, the life is lived in fellowship with him. Second, the same is true for the progressive sanctification. They are created for good works in him. So it's only in the context of this union lived out that we can hope to pursue and attain some of the growth that the psalm calls us to. Just to reiterate this point, this truth is the 
antithesis, the union of Christ, is the antithesis of an abstract truth. It cannot be considered or lived or known abstractly. It's something that we experience by definition in fellowship with the Son of God by the Spirit. It, it occurs in living fellowship with him. It's not just knowledge that we, yes, I know this and move on. We, we receive things from him as we ask for them. His grace and power for every need, trusting him in every difficulty, and striving to honor and resemble him in the various circumstances of our life as we learn obedience gradually. As Calvin puts it, only when our minds are directed to the power of his resurrection can the cross of Christ triumph over evil in the hearts and lives of those who believe. So, with that foundation in place, let's finally consider four concrete dimensions of a life lived in pursuit of God through his word and by his spirit. First, let me repeat that the dynamic, meaning the, the motor of and the center of the Christian life is the loving, ever-deepening pursuit of God. Listen to how Gregory of Nyssa puts it. To see God is never to cease from desiring God. The true vision of God is to desire to see him and never to be satisfied in that desire. In other terms, God is calling us in Psalm 119 to live, that is, to know him without limits and without end in Jesus Christ. Now, in a context where theological education is valued, and rightly so, I'm very much in support of that, it's nonetheless worth reminding ourselves that this pursuit is not the pursuit of knowledge as such, as if that could happen. But neither is it a non-intellectual, vague quest for some experience, any experience, in fact, that may suit us. Psalm 119, like the rest of Scripture, keeps these two things together. We pursue knowledge of God and experience at the same time. They are two sides of the same reality. So, whether we're involved in the formal theological education or not, it's imperative that our knowledge of God not be broken up into some categories, experiential, intellectual, practical, devotional, whatever. These dimensions of, of knowledge of God only exist when they exist together. In other words, they can't be separated. Second, our exploration of the theme of life in Psalm 119 leaves no doubt that God's word is central to the pursuit of this participatory knowledge of God. This means, I think, that we need to regularly rehabilitate our understanding of what Scripture is. Now, I'm not saying our doctrine is bad, but I'm saying the way we live it often doesn't do justice to the doctrine. In one phrase, it's living and powerful. Now, if we really took that seriously, I think we would change how we interacted with Scripture, but one thing at a time. This means, for example, in the language of Hebrews, that his word will probe us. It's going to reveal where our hearts and lives do not align with a full-on pursuit of God, but it will also direct us to him as the one who can give sustain, and perfect that life in us. For example, when we contemplate in the language of 2 Corinthians 3, the glory of the Lord is revealed in the gospel, we will be transformed from one degree of glory uh, to the next. To put it in other terms, as God's word was the immediate means of creation in the beginning, his word is the means of recreation in the domain of soteriology. So, when we read scripture, we have to read it with as full an awareness as possible of the fact that it is a recreating, living and enduring word of God through which he will accomplish his purposes in us and in the world. If this seems too optimistic for whatever reason, I'll leave you to fill those in. Let me remind you of one of many promises of uh, how God will renew his people. This is from Isaiah 29, 18, which basically says, 
put in these terms, spiritual death is no obstacle to God creating spiritual life. Here's what the text reads, verse 18 of Isaiah 29. On that day, with reference in our context here to scripture, the deaf will hear the words of a book. Deaf people don't hear by definition, but that definition crumbles when God acts. Out of their gloom, the eyes of the blind will see. It's all another tautology. This cannot be, and yet it will be. If we recast that promise in the language of Psalm 119, those who seek deeper, richer life with God will receive it in abundance. So these kinds of promises have to, if we take them half seriously, deepen our commitment to reading, pondering, praying over, and responding to Scripture. In practical terms, this may mean that you create some time in the morning where this, this 30 minutes will not be given up to anything except someone's physical health concerns in an emergency. You may meditate, set, a, set an alarm on your phone and meditate on a verse every three hours, something that you read in the morning. It may simply mean to be more intentional overall about not just reading to cover, if you're reading four chapters a day, cover two and meditate on them rather than blasting through four and doing less with them. Third, we need to reckon with and surely modify our behaviors in light of the link between God's word and believers as a community. So here I'm proving that Psalm 19 does not ignore community. God's word formed the ancient Israelite community in which the psalmist lived. That's covenantal and in many other ways. In the same way, the canonical scriptures define the limits of the Christian church by definition, which recognizes them as authoritative, preaches them, and aligns all of its life with them. But the most profound thing, surely, that unites believers is the life that they share. They are sons and daughters, so life is presumed, members of a family, baptized into one body, and if we come back to the word, it's in the church of Christ, in the collective, the community of the church as a whole, that the treasure of the gospel has been deposited and in which God gives preachers and teachers for the edification of the saints. It's also there that he pours out his gifts. So it's in community, but that's a buzzword. So what I mean is the community of the church, that we are addressed by the word as we are here, participate in the sacraments that are signs and seals of the gospel and grow together in love and obedience. God in his wisdom chose to do it this way. He formed this kind of a community. Every member receives gifts that they use for the good of others. It, there's a necessary interchange. There's, as, as the body metaphor illustrates, there's a finger. It's not a finger if it's not connected to a body, for the purposes of the metaphor, at least. And we can't overlook the fact that our contribution, our use of our gifts for the good of others is part of a new life. It's not like my spiritual life I pursue by myself and then out of necessity I will serve the church with these gifts. They are one in the same life. They should be. This has many ramifications for our life together, but let me just mention one. The fact that spiritual growth is a gift, it is given graciously, should make us patient not only with our own failings. We need to be realistic in both senses. We can't be lazy, but we can't expect perfection on Tuesday after Monday, so to speak, um, but especially patient with the failings of others. Usually it's the inverse. We're very patient with ourselves and others get about one strike and then they're out. If we really feel, let's come back to the early verse, as did the psalmist, that our very being clings to the dust. This is about as low as you can go without being buried, to come back to the death idea. During our slow ascent of the eschatological Mount Zion en route towards the city of the living God, how patient we should be with those who, like us, are struggling with indwelling sin, have habits which just seem to not change, certainly not very quickly, have character traits that are not in line with the gospel, but they're under construction and so on. I would say this, we will be patient with one another only in proportion to the degree to which we grasp 
ourselves, our distance, where we are now from where we need to be, and the fact that the reason we are where we are now and the way that we will get from there to here is by grace. If we get those things clearly in our mind, we will surely be more patient with our brothers and sisters. Paul's exhortation to the Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, there's scripture, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, connects this humble appropriation of the word with service of oriented towards other members of the body, edifying them, just to be clear, rather than trying to avoid them or denigrating them or just ignoring them outright. Fourthly and finally, these reflections bring us full circle back to this eschatological already-not-yet tension in which the Christian life is lived. So we've seen that the Christian life, when things are going well, involves increased sensitivity to this, this tension between where I am where God is calling me to be and my desire to be there, even as there's resistance along the way. It's always, it always requires force, which we seek from God. As we close, let me urge us all to remember what is at stake. We pursue what we think valuable. We give most of our energy to what we think is most valuable when we pursue it. Now, each of us would truly love to say, my pursuit of God orders all my priorities. It remains uncontested. It saturates even my most quotidian routines. And my experiential knowledge of the triune God is uh, enjoyed without interruption, without intrusion. Alas, we're not going to be able to say those things absolutely until we reach glory. But, and this is my point, God's grace is more than sufficient to continually remake us in radical ways. If you don't believe much is going to happen, this is not the full equation, but if you don't believe much is going to happen, not much will happen in all likelihood. You, you receive what you ask for unless God in his overwhelming grace deigns to simply disprove you. Anyways, it's more than sufficient to remake us in radical ways so that we can make real progress in knowledge of him and service to others and in witness in the world. Rather than a phrase from Calvin to close, vegetating in that carelessness to which we are all too prone, which is exquisite. Vegetating is just sitting there doing nothing. Rather than vegetating in that carelessness to which we are all too prone, may we take hold of the words of the psalmist and with firm hope grounded in the promises of the gospel, press on to have life abundantly in the God who himself, in his own words, invites us to make him our greatest treasure. Let's pray. O God, you who are the source of all life and who has sent your Son into the world that we might have abundant life, we are painfully aware of our need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and through him in the knowledge of you. In your overflowing goodness, grant us a stronger desire to know you and to increasingly experience here below the eternal life that you hold in store for us. Through your word and spirit, we pray that you would reorder our disordered loves, you'd remove our tolerance of our shortcomings, as well as our impatience with the shortcomings of our brothers and sisters, so that we may be one and the gospel might bear fruit to the ends of the earth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>